Están escuchando el viaje medianoche con el gran Guillermo. Este cinefilo lo va a llevar fantasmal por miles y miles. You're listening to the Midnight Ride, coming live from the crib and the crypt. Hey everyone, what's up? It's that time. Another going to double down on another few films for the, the ride. Um, as I've said probably in a previous episode, it's just easier for me to record these things two at a time versus pumping them out one at a time. The editing, even though it's five, ten minutes extra, um, over the course of 13 films, that adds up. So today I'm going to be looking at two films. The first one, 1973's The Baby, uh, which I think works best is to simply be called Baby. Um, and the other film is from the year prior. Uh, I should say, actually, sorry, uh, here we go, let me back up. The Baby, 1973's The Baby, was prog- it's an American film programmed by one of our European gents, Bjornar, the Norwegian beef. And programmed uh, by an American gent, Jason. Uh, He programmed a European film, an amicus film at that, Tales from the Crypt from 1972. So it'll be interesting to see these two films uh, and talk about them, certainly. Um, As is always the case, I've never seen either of the films or any of the films in this series. I ask friends to program them for me. Um, so I'm going to get right into it here with The Baby, uh, which uh, 84 minutes long. It's PG. Um, oh, I wouldn't let my kids watch this with me in the room. Uh, I think they got to be a little bit older than that. Too many questions would have to be answered or asked. Um, so let me summarize this film uh, while uh, I'm rambling here. A social worker who recently lost her husband investigates the strange Wadsworth family. The Wadsworths might not seem too unusual to hear about them at first, consisting of the mother, two grown daughters, and the diaper-clad bottle-sucking baby. The problem is, the baby is 21 years old. So, yeah, uh, I have to say, going into this film, I really had no idea what it was about. I'd heard about the film um, several times, you know, being a horror and exploitation film fan. It's, uh, it's somewhat well-known. I know Severin put the disc out. A few years ago, uh, to be honest, I thought it was more of a, a demonic sort of possession type film, just from the title. You know, the 70s, there was a lot of cult stuff going on and satanic rituals and all that sort of shit that involved children um, and demon children. So I assumed that's what it was, but I'm happy to report it was something completely different. Um, I'll try not to spoil too much that's going on in the film. 
dear friend, fellow gent, fellow podcaster of the superb Married with Clickers, Scott, I think summarized it best when he called it a um, an episode of The Twilight Zone on acid. I think that's a pretty good description of this one. Um, now, it's got some good pedigree. Um, firstly, it's in the capable hands of Ted Post, who's a director I think is is pretty underappreciated. He directed my favorite of the Dirty Harry films. He directed Magnum Force. Uh, he also did Hang Him High with Clint, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Um, you know, he did a lot of TV work. He did Good, Good Guys Wear Black with Chuck. Go tell the Spartans. Um, so I mean, he's a he's a seasoned vet, um, who has a, a handful of pretty interesting films in his filmography. Certainly, uh, starring in the film is uh, Anjanette Comer, who I didn't really know prior to this film. Um, she's got a pretty robust uh, filmography here. She's got 61 credits to her name. Again, a mixed bag of TV and film, certainly. Uh, but she's the lead. And she's kind of reminiscent to me of, um, Vera Farmiga, uh, maybe like a slightly less attractive Nancy Allen. You know, uh, she plays the social worker who is assigned this case, um, in the film. Now her opposite in the film, her adversary, is uh, actress Ruth Roman, who, again, I also wasn't familiar with, but I definitely am going to seek out more things she does. She's, as is actually everyone in the film, everyone's tremendous in the film, but Ruth Roman, I think, really gives the performance uh, of the film. She is the mother of the titular baby. Um, she's For those that aren't familiar with the film or with her, she kind of reminded me of uh, a steelier kind of uh, Stockard Channing, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of a hint of, of uh, Susan Sarandon, but she's uh, she's just fantastic in the film as this matriarch. Um, and then in the two sisters, Marianna Hill and uh, Suzanne Zanor. I don't think I know either one of them off the top of my head. Oh, maybe I have seen Hill. Yeah. You know what? I have seen Hill. She's done a few things that I liked. Um, she plays Deanna Corleone in uh, Godfather Part Two, which I, I hadn't realized. She, she's in High Plains Drifter, Messiah of Evil, um, Medium Cool, which, if memory serves, let's see here. Yeah, she's okay. She, other than Verna Bloob, she's the lead in that. Um, she's quite good in the film. She reminds me in this film. She's kind of a bit kind of feral and unhinged. Uh, she reminds me a little bit of like a Claudia Jennings type, um, certainly. But uh, she plays one of uh, Baby's sisters, and the other sister, Suzanne Zenor or Zenner. Um, oh wow! I think she was in. Uh, is this De Palma? I think it's De Palma's. Yeah, first film, Get to Know Your Rabbit. She's one of the stars of that film. Uh, alongside John Aston and one of the Smothers Brothers. She did The Way We Were with uh, the insufferable Barbara Streisand, uh, alongside Robert Redford. And, yeah, a mixed bag again, TV and film work, certainly. She's in The Choir Boys, which she's got a small role in that um, Wombaugh-adapted uh, product, which I think tonally isn't um, what it needed to be. But um, anyway, I digress. So... The film opens up and it's got a fantastic opening. It's a darkened room. It's very moody. 
the score for the film really lends itself well uh, without being intrusive. Um, it's got sort of this violin and music box kind of um, number that it, it goes to. It doesn't go to the well too many times, but just enough that really maximizes its um, its mood. And we see this woman looking through photos of a child. And as the she's looking through these photos... We see the child getting progressively older. And the interesting thing is when I – at this point when I'm watching it, I have no realization that it's – it's the, the baby is as a full-grown uh, man, uh, as a baby, sort of acting like a baby. So um, it was a nice little reveal. Um, but I don't think it's a spoiler because it's, it's pretty apparent from even the poster of the film if you were to look at it, um, the legs dangling over the um, – uh, the crib. Uh, now I'm going to digress for a moment. I want to look at Abe Polsky, the writer of the film. He uh, he didn't well, he didn't do a whole lot. Uh, wrote an episode of The Virginian, The Gay Deceivers, The Rebel Rousers, The Brute Core, The Baby, an episode of Kung Fu, and then an episode of Fame. So he didn't do a whole lot. Um, I have to wonder if Polsky or someone he knows. Uh, if they, he's still alive too, uh, he's almost eighty. If he has some sort of background in child welfare or social services, because you get a little bit of, of, of an instance of that, because the stuff that deals with the child welfare and so forth, there's a bit of commentary about it, um, and also the way it kind of looks at that more than just giving give it kind of a cursory glance that some films would. I was sort of curious about that, but anyway, so the film opens like I said with the woman looking at the pictures, and it's a shame, you know. In this digital age, even today as I'm dumping pictures off of my phone, uh, I kind of lament. And I I talk about this often, things that have become antiquated, tangible things that technology's sort of uh, eradicated. And and things like uh, looking at pictures and films and how that's very cinematic. And that's, like I said, uh, gone the way of the dodo bird. But um, it works quite well in this film, the lamenting of it. And it's kind of a bookend in a way... Uh, to what we're well, it, it foreshadows some things certainly. Um, but Ruth Roman, my first impression when I'd seen her come on the screen, get a presence. She's almost like a female Martin Balsam in some ways, and I love Martin Balsam, so it stands to reason I was going to love her. Um, this is more of an exploitation film, I guess, than a horror film, but it is horrific in that it deals with some. Even though it's a far out bizarre film, it deals with some really horrific things and it comments on some things. It, it touches on a lot of different things from child abuse, mental illness, um, and the abuse in the film isn't sort of just physical. There's sexual abuse, mental abuse, emotional abuse. Um, there's uh, sort of, com- I think, condemnation of the child welfare system, uh, of the family dynamic in some regards and how... Uh, parents have a tendency to make their children prisoners of their own ghosts or their own demons or their own failings or perceived failings. Um, that's a big thing in this film, a big, big thing in this film. Uh, because when we see the the uh, Wadsworth family, it's the mother and the two daughters, and then you get the son who's a baby, and you can't help but think, are they keeping him under their thumb as a baby to control him, to manipulate him, um, because, you know, the other relationships with men have gone so sideways in the film. Um, I know good friend Matsuzaka had said in a great review over at Chuck Norris and My Baby had indicated that he felt it was sort of revenge, as it were. 
I could certainly see that. I didn't look at it much as revenge as almost a, I guess, although it would be actively sort of revenge in a way, but just uh, a natural response for the character, not for a sane human being, but for the character in the film, because it's very apparent that things aren't quite right. This uh, worker um, tries to kind of get a bit closer to, to wrap her head around what's happening and why it's happening, and she's uh, subtly kept at arm's length from baby. Um, because the baby's kept, you know, as a baby to avoid the manhood. And I think, or manhood, not the manhood. And I think, too, the film looks at, there's a lot of films, I think, of the 60s and 70s gave way uh, the cynicism around suburbia and what was going on behind the doors and behind the picket fences uh, was a little bit darker and, and grimmer than what we saw portrayed in the in the 50s in film. Um Babe, now Baby himself, uh, where is he? Interestingly, he's not given a, a credit. Um, I think it's Don Milan, or Malin. Um, let me just see here, this makes for riveting podcasting. I don't know, it, it doesn't say if this is him or not. Uh, I'm I'm very experienced in in what I do clearly, um, but uh, the the role of baby is really thankless. Oh no, it's David Mooney. Fuck, I should have looked. Should have scrolled down. I guess shouldn't I? But Mooney's had uh, he's had a few credits. You know, he worked on his, he was in the Chaplin film, um, Six Million Dollar Man, episode of Petrocelli, Oregon Trail, Canon, Herbie Rides Again. He was in an episode of Barnaby Jones. Um, he did a few things, but I think he went on to become a teacher, and someone had said uh, that he um, had showed his students this this role, and it's a pretty awkward role. And it's a thankless performance, really, to have to be a grown man in a diaper and crying and so forth. But I think he does as well as can be expected with it, and certainly you have to be willing to suspend disbelief a little bit. But I do think that the film was in capable enough hands that it doesn't uh, shit the bed or soil the nappy. Uh, should the diaper soil the nappy, as I guess they'd say across the pond? Um, it uh, it, hand- it it really handles the material, I think, as well as can be expected. Um, interestingly, one of the the key plot keywords is male in bathtub. Um, but yeah, uh, Post really handles this stuff pretty well. He doesn't. It's not in clumsy, inept sort of um, irresponsible hands. I think there's a, certainly an intent, like you said, to comment on things. Um, the film, as I said, is well acted across the the whole spectrum of performances, uh, even down to some of the um, smaller turns we get in the film. Um, I think that there's a character in this named Dennis, and he's such a piece of shit. Um, Michael Pataki, character actor. And he has a, a really strong fringe game. Like, the fringes on his suede jacket are so long that he can kind of, sl- like, hold them while he's dancing. And it's crazy because there's a, ba- a birthday party for Baby halfway through the film that is so psychedelic and the opposite of what a child's birthday party should be. Like, there's old dudes in, like, tan leather jackets cutting a rug. Everyone's really dancing to, like, this, this uh, trumpety kind of score. And this trumpety music they're playing and really far out. Um, 
but Dennis, this sleazy uh, sleazy guest who's there, a friend of the sisters. At first, I thought it was a brother. To be honest with you, um, he comes up to our lead, uh, Anne, and he asks her. He says, "Hi, I'd like to pay you a sincere compliment. You've got great skin." And she says, "Thank you. Are you a dermatologist?" And he says, "No, a skin freak." Like that's so gross and creepy. All I can think of is uh, is Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. It's just so gross, man. Um, but yeah, this party's really swinging and boozy, and there's spliffs and, like I said, old dudes in brown leathers and um, all sorts of shit going on. But uh, yeah, there's organ music, saxophones. It's just all over the place. Um, yeah, so we kind of see the film throughout dispenses little little snippets that show us. The abuse, one sister favors one form of abuse, one sister favors another form of abuse. And one of the sisters kind of combines the two with these parlor games, these sort of pain and humiliating parlor games that they kind of even play with Dennis. She she asks him, she'll lose the fact that if he can hold a lighter to his finger or his hand for 60 seconds, she'll fuck him. And uh, he goes to the old college try, but fails. Um, But you kind of see that the cruelty is not just overt from the get-go. It's kind of peeled away, which I liked. Um, the film, it's funny, because about two-thirds of the way through the film, it reaches what would seemingly be the finale in sort of A to B linear hands, but that's not the log- that's not the logical conclusion, because this film is anything but logical, and I mean that in the best possible way. Um, at this point, I mean, the film's 40 years old. I had no, no idea where it was going. Um, so this is a bit of cat and mouse and chess and and there's a reveal near the back end, and uh, it kind of it threw me for a loop. It really threw me for a loop. And you start to maybe get subtle hints that it's going that way, but um, I don't think it was obvious, certainly. Um, and the film you know, has a low body count, and there's only a few bodies in it, and it's more towards the back end of the film, um, where there's, in this house, there's a great set piece to finish the film, a lot of shadows and, and uh, darkness and what have you. And I just got to say, you know, what a fucking ending. I mean, the ending for this, there's two reveals, one in terms of a character near the back end when a big event happens, and then the actual reveal at the finality of the film, the fin- finale of the film, it just really surprised me. And it, it, uh, they, they, they subtly telegraph it earlier on, but it was, it was really well done. So, yeah, uh, in keeping with the theme of trick-or-treat, as I do. I don't really get into the MVTs and all this with these mid- Midnight Ride films. Um, it, uh, I'd call this one absolutely a treat. It's an interesting film that has very strong performances, well-scored, well-shot, very well-directed. It's commenting on a lot of things, which a lot of exploitation films... Uh, of the time we're doing because it was a very politically charged and socially charged time. Um, so, yeah, I, I would strongly recommend this to everyone. I mean, it's not a masterpiece, but it's definitely a good film. I, I'm very pleased to have said I've seen it now. So with that, uh, we'll take a break and we'll come back and we'll talk about Tales from the Crypt. Oh, the werewolf, oh, the werewolf, come to step in He don't even break the branches where he's been gone. 
You can hear his long holler from way across the moors. That's the holler of the werewolf when he's feeling poor. He goes out in the evening when the bats are on the wing, and he's killed some young maiden before the birds sing. Hey everyone, welcome back. We are going to be talking about a film from 1972. This was programmed by my good friend from the Philadelphia area, our good friend, uh, artiste extraordinaire, all-around fine gent, a man of impeccable taste and distinction. Um, just, yeah, just a tremendous dude. Uh, Jason C., we'll say, to keep him somewhat uh, incognito. Um he is uh, uh, he is someone that I'm rambling about. Uh, he picked a film called Tales from the Crypt. I'm sure most of you have heard of it. Um, this is the Amicus film, of course, because it's 1972. Now, uh, most of us were certainly familiar with the Crypt Keeper in the late 80s, early 90s version of uh, this formula where uh, Crypt Keeper would guide us through several uh, tales and, uh, you know, and there'd be some lessons to be had, certainly, in some of them. And, and this film really is not, uh, not any different. Uh, in fact, all of these tales are very much moral tales, which I can't recall if in Tales from the Crypt they all were. I mean, with, with the, the amount of time that the, the, the show ran, um, I don't know that they all were, uh, although they may have tried to be or how they shoehorned it in. But um, all of these are very much... Uh, uh, moral tales, as it were. Um, let me just uh, bring up the IMDb here. Um, so, yeah. Uh, now, I, I'll be full... I'll give sort of full disclosure here. British horror is not my bag. I, I really... Not a big fan of it, with all due respect to uh, our friends, uh, you know, in the area. It just it doesn't work for me. It's usually very dry. I like more kind of absurd sleaze and style, like you know, that Italy brings, and I think that's kind of in line with who I am aesthetically and otherwise. Um, you know, a lot more makeup and disco and and swooping cameras and you know, it just it's a little bit more. <laughs> in line with me, but, um, not that I wear makeup, uh, certainly, but, um, 
but so I, I was a bit, yeah, not, not so much concerned, but I was curious how this one was going to shake out for me. Um, the film's directed by Freddie Francis, who um, he uh, has a pretty good pedigree. Um, looks like he did a lot of uh, British TV and some Black Beauty and uh, a lot of horror early on in his career, certainly. Um, directed Day of the, Tri- the Triffids, uncredited. Uh, Nightmare, Evil of Frankenstein, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, Hysteria, The Deadly Bees, The Intrepid Mr. Twig, on and on it goes, Dracula's Risen from the Grave, blah, blah, blah. Gurley, oh, he did Gurley. Interesting. Um, yeah, that's very cool. I didn't know that he had uh, he had made Gurley. Uh, also known as Mumsy, Nanny, Sonny, and Gurley. Wow, very cool. Um, so anyway, uh, in his hands, uh, you know, I'll be forthright in saying I quite enjoyed the film. Um, anthologies are something that I think a lot of us horror fans yearn for, but they're rarely done well. Um, yeah, uh, you know, Trick or Treat being, being the most recent example of one that I think works quite well, and I think it surpasses a lot of other uh, anthologies in, in the uh, genre. Um, horror, I guess, lends itself well to that. Action doesn't necessarily, drama needs more time to set up, but... You know, creep show quite on uh, to trick or treat, uh, which you know I think is really festive too. I think it works quite well. Three Extremes is great. Well, I guess there's more than I, I think of here because Trilogy of Terror is quite good in its own kind of rompy way. Um, I've never seen VHS, uh, certainly. Cat's Eye is one I quite dig, but I haven't seen it in a number of years. Uh, that uh, thing, uh, Tales from the Dark Side, is pretty good, but again, that's without me having seen it uh, in some time. Certainly, um, Body Bags is uh, it's okay. It's not the greatest. Uh, two Evil Eyes, I don't really care for, despite the involvement of the two uh, directors. Um, anyway, so it's not really something that uh, Nightmares is another one that's kind of fun, but it's it's older, and a few of those stories are probably lumpy uh, on a revisit. But anyway. I digress. I don't really digress, but I'm getting off the point of this specific film here. Um, so, uh, Tales from the Crypt um, is 90 minutes long. It's got five stories, so it's basically you know 15 minutes a story um, because there's you know some interplay between each segment. There's a setup with the Crypt Keeper, Sir Ralph Richardson, we should say. Um, much loved British actor. Uh, I haven't seen a ton of his stuff. I've seen some of the work he's done. Time Bandits, Greystoke, you know, a few other things. Um, nothing that jumps out at me off the top of my head without going through his filmography necessarily. Um, but the two big draws for me were Joan Collins and uh, the Cush, Peter Cushing, who, because I'm not a huge fan of British horror, you know, as much as he's an icon and he's really, you know, he's adored by so many people. Um, that love horror and love British horror, um, you know, I, I'm kind of indifferent on him. Um, and I, I think it's cool when he shows up because of how how much he means to people. But, you know, I'm more of a Vincent Price kind of guy, I guess. But maybe that has more to do with what I grew up with, certainly. Um, so the first segment, it's uh, it's got uh, Joan Collins in it and uh, the segments and all through the house. And this is this takes place at Christmas. And... This is a really delicious setup, and I guess it feels probably the most Italian of all of the uh, of all of the, um, the stories because it's this sort of stylish house and this really groovy wallpaper. And we see that she um, 
she does something that's uh, certainly, you know, as an understatement, morally questionable. And uh, gosh, I guess I'm going to kind of dance around this a little bit. Um, <coughs> or do I even dance around it? Um, she, she commits a crime. And through fate, um, her hand is forced and she cannot call the police for fear of being found out for the crime she's committed. This takes place at Christmas. It's got Christmas music all throughout. Um, her husband wears like this absurd party fez. I never knew fezes were really a thing to wear it at, um, at Christmas, but apparently they are. And I have to ask, I've always wondered this, and, and I don't, you know, I'm not an advocating for its return because I think it does look a bit gaudy in hindsight. But when did tinsel go out of favor? You know, when I, I remember as a kid, people used to put tinsel on the trees and it looked fantastic. But now we're a much more minimal time and tinsel is just no way. You know, no one does tinsel anymore. But anyway, um, so, yeah, uh, she does this thing and there's a there's a, a stain of some sort that that arises and white shag and stains don't go together, as we all know. And um a bit of an impulsive move on her part. And I have to say the house looks a little bit like the boarding house that is in the beginning of Suspiria, not the academy itself, but the one where there's the, um, like the stained glass window where there's the hanging and all that. Um, but uh, it looks a little bit like that. Um, and the, it's really well shot too early on. Like there's some really great shots of Joan Collins sitting on the floor uh, in front of a window uh, that it works really well. looks really nice. And, um, before I before I even knew it, that segment ended, and I guess that's kind of a good thing from the standpoint of I was quite enjoying it, and it just it was quick. It got in, got out, um, and I'll say it again: Joan Collins is just a stone cold fox in this segment. Um, so yeah, uh, and then you know, a certainly cautionary tale. Um, the next segment. Um, let me just go here uh, in order. Because I, my notes were a little bit spare. Like I said, these ones, um, by the time you kind of got settled into it, uh, they were ending. So, um, let me see here. Again, riveting, I know. Um, um, br 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 oh, yeah, Reflection of Death. And this... Uh, this um, Deals with a man who um, he's unfaithful to his wife. He's going to leave his he's just a piece of shit. He's going to leave his family and his ki his kids and wife and take off with his young mistress, who is also dynamite. I will say, but uh, uh, Angela Grant is who uh, who she is. Um, so I guess she did the Carry On films. Um, she's she's quite delicious. Um, but uh, he's going to leave his family. They get in an accident. Things happen. Um, we're at a point now where you kind of know where the reveal is going to come. But it's still quite fun to see the doors that um, that Ian Hendry goes down uh, before the realization kicks in. Um, yeah, and it's, it's quite a good little piece, certainly, too. And again, it's, it's rather quick. 15 minutes, chop, chop, in and out. Um, and we should say all of these, uh, of course, are based on the uh, the comic books, the EC Comics, which I've always loved that aesthetic. The film uses that aesthetic to a degree. Um, I would have loved to have seen an Italian riff again. I hate to bounce to Italy so much, but I think the you know the lighting and, and that sort of candy 
the gels and stuff that people like uh, Argento used so much. Uh, and even in Creepshow, you really, really went for that spirit of EC Comics. Um, I think there, I wish there had been more of that. There's not a ton of that kind of stuff going on, but um, these are all these were all adapted from stories from Tales from the Crypt, The Vault of Horror, The Haunt of Fear. You know, really great little stories. Um, so the next one, Poetic Justice, is uh, is quite good. Now this is where Cushing shows up, and I have to say he puts in a really great, small, sympathetic performance. Um, it's basically about uh, a husband, a father and son. They're kind of snotty, uh, well-to-dos. And they hate their neighbor, this uh, garbage man Peter Cushing plays, and he has a lot of animals, and he's always giving kids candy, and in a very you know uh, friendly way. There's nothing skeevy about him. Um, so they decide that they're going to um, they're going to uh, do some awful things to get him to move out, and they go about this really shitty campaign of uh, of uh, you know systematically. Breaking down everything that's uh, that's important to him, um, you know. Uh, sorry, my wife asked me what I want on my penzarotti, um, and time is of the essence. So I need to order right now: hot peppers, mushrooms, ground beef. Um. So anyway. Uh. So they go about doing some really awful things. And there's a moment when they – I don't want to reveal what happens, but they send uh, Kush some stuff, and, like some letters, some correspondence. He thinks it's from people. And he's a lonely old guy and um, just his heart breaks when he had the realization of what, um, what, uh, what he finds out, what he perceives to be happening. Um, and it's really sad. And it shows, I mean, that Kush, I mean, I'm seeing the obvious here. Obvious statements are obvious, but how good he is uh, as an actor, certainly. And I, I'd like to see him stretch his legs in some more dramatic stuff. If some people want to let me know some of his more dramatic turns that he was really good in, I'd be curious to see what some of that stuff was. Um, but this this one ends uh, with a really great kind of... Uh, uh, Loving sort of Valentine punctuation, and I, and I quite dug it. It was it was pretty good. Um, the next one is the kind of story that you you've, you see quite a bit, um, and I think it's for good reason. It it it's it gives it the setup gives it a really unlimited sandbox in terms of uh, what you're able to do with it. Basically, what happens is a businessman is you know he's he's got debts and. Uh, his wife, when they're going through the house and they say they're going to have to sell everything, they, they look at this Chinese statue and he's going to give them three wishes. And we all know how that goes. Uh, this is done really ingeniously though because the people don't really wish for ridiculous things. The responses they give are pretty thought out. Um, but the consequences of the trickery that happens with each of the – uh, subsequent wishes, uh, it's just kind of like you smack your forehead and think, fuck, you know, why didn't they think of that? And it's not really obvious things like, I want everything in the world. And then, you know, they get buried under this mountain of stuff. Um, it's relatively smart stuff and, and they're left trying to play sort of catch up and it, uh, it, you know, very much careful what you wish for. And it's great because the, there's a motorcyclist in this that's very much like a cyclomania motorcyclist, which is kind of cool. Um, 
but uh, I have to say, there's a moment with some dismemberment. Uh, I have to wonder if, if uh, Dan O'Bannon and company were inspired by this scene because the sound design in the scene and what's happening uh, Return, with Return of the Living Dead with the, um, with the cadaver scene. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> who knows? But uh, that one was quite good. And the last one uh, stars Nigel Patrick and he's the director of A Home for the Blind and uh, he's, he's a piece of shit. He's, you know, financial cuts and no heat and awful food and he's uh, just living in the lap of luxury. And uh, a guy dies, it's cold and awful, and uh, they decide they're going to get some revenge. And um, they really go about it in a, in a pretty delicious way um, by getting revenge on him. Uh, that one at that point, I was, uh, I was probably the least least engaged maybe with i don't know no that one was pretty good you know what uh, i'll say this um it's hard to review anthology films sammy and i have talked sammy and i have talked about this in our main show um many times because you know you don't have a chance to stretch your legs with a lot of things uh, that go on uh, throughout a film but um i'll say this this is definitely one of the better anthology films and it's on youtube and pretty good quality um they say HD. I don't know if it's quite HD. Certainly, it doesn't reach that realm. But um, this is a very, very good anthology. And far more often than not, when you get three, four, five stories, one or two of them are going to shit the bed. None of them in this shit the bed. All of them are good to very good. This is a fun, fun uh, anthology. I really dug it. I'm really glad that uh, Jason picked it because, like I said, I, I really enjoyed it. And I'm. And I'm Who's to say whether I would have gotten to it or not? I guess that's kind of the point of me asking friends to program because they're going to pick stuff that I'm not going to sort of shy away from and end up never picking. Um, but, uh, yeah, it worked uh, worked quite well. Uh, very fun. Um, and, you know, I, I think you could do certainly a lot worse than this. Uh, and uh, I guess that's everything for this episode. So uh, next, I'm going to come back with some more British horror. I imagine I've got um, Blood on Satan's Claw and the what's it called? Man, I'm I'm the worst. Uh, the Innocents. I think I'm probably going to come back with those two next. I forgot my notebook at home like a dummy. I'm on a new notebook. Um, Hence the reason I've done this. But if not, you'll hear those coming down the pipes pretty soon. So with that, I will quit bothering and I will say adios. All right, all right. You've been listening to the Midnight Ride with Lodge William, baby. Stay tuned for another episode where we bring the pumpkin to the pumpkins and the hangman's rope to the city
aura compris que c'est ce monsieur Hyde qu'on aimait en lui. Mr. Hyde, ce salaud a fait la peau, la peau du Dr. Jekyll. Dr. Jekyll. 